Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on social media at Fisheries Pod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Brian, Jody, Jerry, Garrett, Ben, Janet, and John, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod merch on our Teespring store if you feel inclined. So check it out. My name is Preston Chrisman, and I am looking forward to catching up with our guest today, Dr. Don Orth. Don retired in the summer of 2023 as the Thomas H. Jones Professor in the Department of Fish and Wildlife Conservation at Virginia Tech. During his time at VT, he guided numerous undergraduate research projects and advised 33 graduate students. His principal research interests included population and community ecology, stream fish ecology, regulated rivers, in-stream flow and stream habitat assessment, fisheries management, and fish population dynamics. Don attended Eastern Illinois University, where he earned his bachelor's degree, before moving on to Oklahoma State, where he earned both his master's degree and Ph.D. He is a very active member and a fellow of the American Fisheries Society. Throughout his career, Don published more than 150 primary papers and 50 technical papers on fish, fisheries, and riverine management, and has received numerous awards for his teaching and contributions to conservation and public outreach. Welcome to the podcast, Don. Thank you, Preston. Uh, Preston is very, very happy to be here and uh, uh, look forward to an interesting conversation with you. Yeah, me me too. I'm excited. Um, So as I was preparing for this interview, I read that you were originally from Chicago. How did you become interested in fish and fisheries growing up in that urban environment? Yeah, that's a great question because it really was uh, an urban environment and uh, hard to find any aquatic habitats. Uh, uh, In the winter, you could find some uh, flooded areas that have been flooded for playing hockey uh, and and every little creek was going through uh, a sewer or, you know under under the street uh, so you had to look far and wide so I did uh, I did manage to find uh, a local uh, park at a golf course and had uh, storm drain ponds and the storm drain ponds were filled with uh, fish and so you know uh, it was a great place to start you know hunting little bluegill and, and kind of get, getting excited about what's uh, interesting about fish. Uh, and then I, I used to uh, travel to the beach on Lake Michigan to fish, uh, to you know, swim in the summertime. And in the summer 1967, we had the biggest um, alewife die off uh, of its time. It, it wasn't the first and it wasn't the last, but it was tremendous impact on me just because I had no idea how many fish were in in the lake and here they were up on the beach all dead and smelly so (laughs) that definitely uh, made a huge impression and you know made me curious about what's going on here in this big lake okay yeah um so when did you become come to the realization that you wanted to become a a college professor teaching fishing science yeah, that that came later. I mean, I always I wanted to, you know, study fisheries. I wanted to be engaged in, you know, practical management issues. And I honestly thought I would be uh, uh, employed in the private sector and consulting firm or an agency uh, when I, I, my whole time going to college. And it was really uh, opportunistic that the position at uh, Virginia Tech had been opened. They had a, a the search had failed. Uh, when it was first uh, done, I, I didn't apply initially, 
but I, I was encouraged to apply uh, by my major professor and went through the interview process. And, you know, I was really convinced at the time, this, this is a good move for me. Uh, allows me to do some things that were, uh, were new. I would learn more about uh, college teaching and, and running a large, uh, my own research programs. You know, mm. most people don't do that today, right after school. Mm -hmm. So it was a very uh, different time, a very fortunate circumstance, because uh, today most uh, most college professors are hired after, you know, uh, a, a postdoc experience where they, you know, spend years uh, working with someone else and uh, continuing to hone their craft. Yeah. Did you did you ever envision that you were, were going to spend your career at Virginia Tech when when you took that job? No, you know, I was very unfamiliar with the state mm -hmm. uh, when I got here. And so it was a, a, an adjustment to learn uh, the people and, and the problems and the issues. And uh, but, I, you know, I really did uh, uh, learn to like the job and learned to, to love the area. And so there was like uh, wasn't really interested in, in leaving the uh, southwest Virginia region. Yeah. yeah. OK. Um, so you have many research interests, as, we, as we've discussed a little bit, and you've published so many papers and books. Uh, I did have to be somewhat selective in which ones we were discussed today to be mindful of our time. So uh, let's get started with your interest in in-stream flow and stream habitat yeah. assessments. You won the Making a Difference Award from the In-Stream Flow Council in 2008. So if you could just kind of tell us briefly about your work with in-stream flow, what led you down this particular research niche? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and that's, it really is a, a unique niche. Uh, and if you think about it, 50 years ago, there was a major effort in the arid uh, states in, in uh, the U.S. to uh, deal with this question of in-stream flow. And in-stream flow, just for those who are not familiar with the term, it's, it's a legal term. It's not really a science term. So we've got to get past that. This is the term that we would hope would be in uh, state statutes saying there's there are beneficial uses for leaving water in the stream. Okay, once you get the law passed in the states, people said, it, yes, it's necessary to keep water in streams. The question arises, well, how much and, and how frequently? And, and well, what about floods? And uh, how, do you, how do you replicate that? So really a whole suite of research questions that uh, continue to be a uh, challenge today for people who work in this area. And so really the, the in-stream flow council was formed uh, early on so that all uh, states and provinces would, would be able to share information, what they're learning. Um, and then there was a training group that was formed in the 70s as well. So 50 years ago, we were training people how to do this. And today there is no group doing the training. So currently still working on in-stream flow issues, uh, trying to establish a a center that would be involved primarily in training, you know, today's uh, uh, early career professionals on how to do these things and how to keep some water in streams. Yeah, that sounds like a great project. Yeah. You've had numerous research projects over the years on a water body that is near and dear to my heart since I grew up on it. So if you could please tell us about some of your work on the renowned New River in uh -huh. Virginia and how some key aspects of that river have changed over time. Yeah. Oh, thanks. That's the new river. You know, I, it's it's right over the hill from where I'm looking out the window. So it's it's cl close to me uh, this morning. 
And uh, I've really uh, been fortunate to uh, go have a number of focused research studies on, on the New River. Just about in every decade I was at Virginia Tech, I, I was doing something on a New River, but and different kinds of questions. So early on, uh, when I first got to Virginia, you know, you, you couldn't catch a smallmouth bass over 10, 11 inches. And it was just frustrating because people would, you know, there's plenty of fish in the river, but they're all, you know, stockpiled just below 12 inches. And it was at the time where we were doing experiments on uh, special regs on small impoundments. So a lot of that information could transfer to a, a smallmouth population like uh, the one in the New River. It really turned it into, you know, kind of a, a, a statewide, you know, featured river for uh, trophy smallmouth bass. Uh, and then, I mean, all of the issues we have, you know, internationally about fisheries, whether it's in, invasive uh, fish, whether it's a harvesting, harvesting at multiple trophic levels, uh, changing habitats, doing hydropower development, blo uh, blocking uh, 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 fish from migration. All those things are, are, are present in the New River. And in fact, people think it's this pristine place in the western part of the state. Well, it's really had, is one of the most dammed up uh, rivers in, in Virginia, in the Virginia section. I and mean, we have rivers of comparable length that, that have minimal, you know, big dams on them. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of old ones and uh, they're not going away anytime soon. So the challenge uh, today is really living with, with dams, living with some of the invasives that have really, you know, made it a home in, in the new river. Let's see. In 2019, you co-authored the Field Guide to Freshwater Fishes of Virginia. Uh, this seems like an incredibly daunting project to me. So, what what was the process like of creating a fish field guide? Yeah, yeah. This this was a, a project of the state uh, chapter, Virginia chapter of AFS, and uh, it had been going on a long time. Ever since uh, Bob Jenkins published the Freshwater Fishes of Virginia, everyone said. You know, this is a great, it's a great treatise. Uh, everything you need to know is in there, but it's just, it's too big. <laughs> it's too big to take in the field. It's too big for the uh, non-professional non who's just enthusiastic about fish to, you know, take it and, and use it. So um, we, we developed a core group uh, and it was the five authors who, who worked for years uh, coming up with a proposal uh, for how we were going to do this, knowing that the readership for a field guide is is pretty limited, you know. So it's not a you're not going to make a lot of money and publishing houses. Uh, we had to we had to go with Johns Hopkins, who had a previous relationship with one of our uh, co-authors, Val Kells, and she was instrumental in kind of convincing the powers in the in the university press that this is a worthwhile uh, endeavor, and and it really has been. Uh, we pr uh, printed two thousand. Uh, copies of the field guide initially, and, and they sold within before the year was out. Mm. And you know, so we've been continuing to, you know, reprint uh, that that guide, and it's, and you know, nothing but uh, you know, praise for the work we've done, and and really, what it was a great group effort. You know, I think we had some terrific uh, uh, scientists who really knew knew the Virginia fauna well. Mm -hmm. So, I think you know, we, we need one. For, for most every state. And, and, and then you need to revise these things every couple of years because already uh, there's some uh, 
names that are out of date. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and and species that have been split. Yeah. You've worked extensively with riverine and stream fish communities over the years. Uh, what are some some of these trends with these groups or, or really just freshwater fishes in general that you've detected that might be cause for concern? Or are there any trends mm. that might be cause for celebration? Yeah, great. Uh, you know, I think globally, you know, freshwater fauna really are, are at risk uh, and all freshwater fauna including the uh, fishes. Uh, so fortunately, there's a global recognition that um, we're using too much water, we're modifying our freshwater river systems too dramatically, and we're losing biodiversity at a rapid pace. Uh, no one no one argues those those points. You know, the, 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 well, really the arguments come for how, how and what elements we will restore. And, and, and at least in the uh, United States, we have some things to celebrate. I mean, we've, we've documented and, and that the snail darter, previously an endangered fish, well, one of the first endangered fish that we argued about, uh, it, it's been removed from the endangered species list. And that, that's no trivial task. And that, that really took uh, efforts from uh, a variety of uh, uh, experts in the private and public sector to kind of go from, you know, endangered status to a recovered status. That's the goal of the Endangered Species Act. And I think we need to uh, continue to, to see those success stories and celebrate them. There's a lot a lot to celebrate. Uh, you know, we know a lot more about the Alabama sturgeon today than we did when the Endangered Species Act was was first passed, um, so that's that's clearly cause for celebration. Yeah, and the flip side is the invasive uh, fish that you know people uh, 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 love to move from place to place, and so uh, and we we now have these special tools, so you can look at a an Alabama bass and and you know be confirmed that it is uh, pure or it is a mixed heritage. So mm -hmm. this understanding of these, uh, you know, cryptic uh, black bass, I think has really changed the, the way we think about uh, black bass management in our region. Yeah, for sure. Um, so following right up on that with the concerns for our native freshwater fishes, uh, you've worked wide with widely publicized invasive fishes in recent years. So if you could elaborate on some of your work and your overall thoughts or feelings on blue catfish and northern mm. snakehead that have both been uh, introduced into Virginia recently. All right. Uh, the two, two uh, fish that uh, certainly don't belong in Virginia, don't belong in the Atlantic Slope. Uh, however, I mean, I think we've studied them enough to realize that they will always be with us. Yeah. And so the management of, of each of these uh, species in, in various places where it lives is is a people question, uh, and and it's the people who are going to help us, you know, make some do some interventions that will make a difference. Um, I think early on there was just an incredible hype and concern about the northern snakehead and all the things that they could do. There was such a foreign species for us that people believed the hype. Yeah. Uh, and as it turned out, you know, basically they are uh, a uh, more, more benign member of the uh, freshwater community where they exist than, you know, than, than we they feared, feared that they were going to be the terror. Uh, snakehead terror was one mm -hmm. of the early movies written about uh, northern snakeheads. So that, that's not to say that we don't need to manage the invasive fish. 
but we need to do it with a, a, a clear rec uh, understanding of how all peoples view uh, this fish. And, and you know, the views are as varied you know, as you can imagine. And mm -hmm. so some people are going to want them managed for one purpose and, and, and others for another. So it's, I, I don't think we're, we're ever going to get to the point where we simply label something invasive and then, you know, work to annihilate it because right. we understand that that's, you know, even for the common carp, which has been here for 150 years, um, still working on ways to, you know, eliminate populations of common carp. So it, it's all about, you know, establishing realistic goals and, and working towards those goals that, uh, that people will ag agree upon and really get behind your management programs. Yeah. So that, and that was the, the snakehead, the blue catfish is, is really, you know, it's, it's a Virginia's legacy, at least the game, the agency that allowed, not didn't allow it to happen, made it happen, you know, without any public input. So here's a tremendous lesson. It wasn't the only species, but many species uh, were traded among uh, different states uh, and, you know, Place, various places, some benign, some no impact, others like the blue catfish. It took about 10 years, but people finally began seeing these huge catfish. And then all of a sudden, now there's a different you know, game in town and people will adapt and people will learn to love the, uh, the blue catfish. And, and the impact on blue catfish uh, still needs to be further understood. What we know for, sh for I think, for, for, with some certainty is that really what the impact they had ecologically was the elimination of the native uh, white catfish. And the native white catfish were already at low levels because they were decimated by competition uh, with uh, channel catfish, another non-native mm -hmm. fish. So I, I think blue catfish is, you know, good news, bad news, good news. They've really heightened the interest of people, fishing people, uh, about catfish. We just need to know so much more about the catfishes. Um, you know, sad news, still, it's really hard to get past what do they eat, but what does that predation effect have on the natural functioning of the ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Still many questions unanswered there. You've published a second book as your career was winding down. So tell us about fish, fishing, and conservation that came out last year. Yes, thank you. I'm really happy to to share that uh, with you and, and with everyone. Uh, it, it was published last June, and it was a project that was kind of in the back of my head for, for a long time. A long time I recognized that our, our department and most you know experts in, in fish and fishing, um, we weren't teaching courses that the non-majors could take. Uh, and so we're really missing a, an opportunity to educate, you know, uh, the public because, you know, who has to be more, more uh, on top of these issues if they're going to be engaged in public in involvement. So, um, and so when Virginia Tech was on perhaps the third uh, iteration of uh, general ed revision, at least since I've been there, uh, they were going to make it uh, more difficult to create a course 
you know, that would fulfill general ed requirements. And I was convinced that this was needed. So I got an approval to teach this as a general education course. So students who you know, major in any other major on campus can learn their natural science reasoning and social science reasoning credits with this single class. And in the process, practice uh, ethical reasoning. In that. So they're aware of ethical issues that arise in, in conservation. So it was, you know, it was, I got the course approved, I think it was 2019, um, ready to teach it. And then the, the COVID pandemic hit. And so I really went into lockdown. <laughs> I was I told I was non-essential, go home. <laughs> and the best thing for me to do from home was to, to write, uh, write this book. And so I made most of the uh, effort writing and reviewing and uh, compiling information during the, during the years of the pandemic. And then the first times I taught the class was an online version. You know, it wasn't until uh, 2022 that I actually got to teach it, you know, face to face, which, you know, which was was finally a, a great uh, experience because I could see students' faces and, and excitement about the topics. You know, they were there; they weren't just on these faces on the screen uh, yeah. in a Zoom meeting. Um, so it's been it's been popular. It's been downloaded uh, from over in over eighty countries around the globe. It's free, so you can. Look at it. You can be reading it within a minute on your uh, on your electronic device, and that's what we encourage people to do: is to read it, use it. You know, and when it's out of date, it's easy to revise it. And uh, because it's in this special uh, publication licensing agreement, that's called Creative Commons. It's okay to take it and share it with others as long as you uh, give us attribution for what you took. Well, that's great. So I'm, yeah. Yeah, I imagine people use, you know, particular chapters and just assign one chapter, two chapters. Others are using the whole book. That's great. Yeah. Uh, how has the course been received very well so far? Uh, yes, pretty much. Uh, it's it's full fill, fills up uh, uh, well before the semester begins. So uh, my I, I think my expectation was that we could begin teaching this every semester uh, and then could offer multiple sections. Mm. Uh, you know, of, you know, I think, I think we start, I filled up a class with 50. I think we start with create two sections. I think we could fill up a class with two, two classes of 50. And we could do that every semester and there'd still be, you know, people mm -hmm. coming yeah. because they're always coming, you know, freshmen, sophomores looking for something like this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great news. Kind of, kind of following up on that, you've you've always been a strong uh, proponent for communicating research findings to the non-technical -te public and for open access science. So, what drove your passion towards these parts of our field? Uh, well, my my early work uh, on on in-stream flow really uh, pointed to the fact that this was such a unique niche, and you know, most people, even professionals, didn't know. Uh, the the nuances about how to do this. So it's important for communicating at different levels. And so I began offering courses for uh, uh, for professionals, so continuing education classes. And then there's you know more general uh, need for people just the awareness of uh, you know fish in our world and what a, the unique um, 
things they do. And so I, I uh, committed to starting a blog on in about 2010, and, and that took off. I think there's over 5,000 people who follow the uh, Facebook uh, page, and, and which is linked to, to the blog. And that just allowed me to just write about fun stuff, fun with fish, and, and just was always something new. Um, and, and actually, I, 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 in terms of how it really got started at the very beginning, uh, we required our graduate students, as, as long as I've been at Tech, when our graduate students uh, have finished their thesis dissertations, they were required to write an article that would be uh, understandable by the general public and could be published in, in a magazine, you know, whether it's in Fisherman or you know, some other you know, North Carolina wildlife, or, you know, whatever it is, but tailored to a different reader and, and so that we don't get kind of hung up with writing for other scientists. And, and that's easy, easy to do. Uh, do you have any brief recommendations for how we as researchers can improve our communication and open access efforts? Uh, yes, uh, you know, practice, 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 I think, and, and practice has to be, you know, it has to improve. So that means we have to have people who, who look at our writing uh, frequently and just give us some encouragement and, and feedback. As simple, th as something as simple as that, you know, just to start with the first, you know, first thing, you know, wherever it goes, you, you have a perfect, per perfect purpose for that publication. And you're going to see if it's realized or not just by asking others who have read it. Mm -hmm. you know, and if it's if it seems to be doing the job, then you're going to be encouraged to, to do that more often. Yeah. OK. Uh, now that you have officially retired, I would love to hear your thoughts on how teaching changed and how you adapted from your first yeah. year on the job to, to 2023. Well, uh, that's a that's a going to involve a long answer, but I'll try to, <laughs> I'll try to be uh, brief about that. There's so many technological innovations, you know, um, but I think some, let me start with some of the things that have remained constant sure. and, and what has remained constant is, you know, th this need for your student to, you know, to just get, get into their brain so that you, you know, you're, you're communicating. I, I'm looking at you right now. I can see that you're, you're paying attention. You're, you're reacting to some things I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's that need for that personal connection, I think hasn't gone away. It, it's harder, you know, when we are, uh, adapt to new technologies and, and zoom and online and, and asynchronous teaching. Um, but it's still essential that at some point, you know, that, that level of instructor communication and feedback. If that's not happening, then you're just doing one-way, you know, communication. We're not doing teaching. And so, you know, things, things it was frustrating how rapidly things changed because I, I was initially, you know, assigned to teach quantitative classes, which in 1980 meant we had programmable calculators and, and, and we had mainframe frame computers. And we talked with the mainframe computers with a language either in basic or Fortran. And today, nobody uses those two languages. And at some point in time, uh, uh, we, we were given computers that had spreadsheets. And all, all of a sudden, oh, well, it's time to, you know, create a spreadsheet that would help me teach this topic or that topic. And, and the, all, this, all of these things led to 
the big statistical packages like SAS becoming too cumbersome and expensive and not used. And then it led to open source and open source education products you know, like uh, like the program R, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, any of our, you know, early career professionals today are trying to become masters of R uh, and, and going to adapt to the, the next new thing. So that change in technology uh, and the ability to do things now couldn't do uh, 40 years has is, is really been uh, a dramatic shift. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that, that need, that need to have, you know, the conversations. And, and that's what I thought about when writing this book. And uh, I'm, I, I could insert little questions throughout the, the book. And these questions I inserted were open-ended, uh, I call them questions to ponder, as opposed to a multiple choice questions. So I want the book to stimulate people to think beyond uh, the, the, what's written there. Think their own experiences. How could this concept apply to what I'm interested in doing? Uh, we're kind of winding down here. Um, I plan to ask every guest I interview these last two questions. Um, so first, if you hadn't gone into the fisheries field, what would you have been doing, you think? Um, yeah, I don't know for certain. I think I would have spent a little more time, um, uh, you know, with, with music. I mean, I, okay. I love to play music, sing music, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I wasn't ever going to become a uh, – a, a source of income, you know, based on my ta- talents, it just wasn't going to happen. So I would have found something else to do, and I, I think I, it would have it would have still involved uh, aquatics and, and okay. scientific applications, and probably would have been, you know, focused on, um, you know, beyond beyond f- fisheries management and more in, environmental improvements, environmental uh, data analysis and systems uh, thinking. Uh, and, you know, a lot of uh, jobs in the uh, private sector uh, would have uh, been open to me with that kind of uh, uh, target. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then just finally, if, if you would just leave us with some, some good piece of advice, this could be just general life advice, or if you have a, a nugget you think students or, or early career professionals yeah. need to hear, the, the floor is yours. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the uh, two, two th- key things we all need, we all needed while we were in school. And if we didn't have it, then we probably didn't have as good experience as we could. Those two things are a network of, of professional contacts, familiar with your field. And, and the second really are a network of people outside your field who you could still rely on, but they could help tell you about latest developments in organic chemistry or contaminants or, you know, neuroscience, or who knows what those areas are, but, mm-hmm. you know, we can't be experts in everything, you know, and, but, but we have to rely on a network of experts in our field that can always, you know, we're always trying to learn something new and those, those mentors can help you can look at what you've done and give you feedback. If you never get any feedback on what yeah. you're doing, never going to get any better what you do. And so we need to get be getting better at things in our field as well as things that are, you know, uh, around the edges, because those are really what enrich our, our abilities and bring kind of new ideas in, into the field. Okay, that's great. 
Um, so, well, Don, now the tough part of the interview is over as we're down to the final five questions. This is a group of five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show. So we always start pretty simple with what is your favorite fish? Yeah, that's easy. Uh, <laughs> I don't have one. Okay. <laughs> uh, there are over 35,000 species of fish, you know, and yeah. I've tried to answer that question in the past, honestly. And, and usually it gets down to the the thing that is currently paying my salary or sure. paying the pay salary of my students. I'm, that, that makes me feel good. Uh, but, <laughs> okay. but I, I found, you know, every fish kind of teaches a, a lesson. So it really, there's thousands of lessons to learn and, you know, thousands of fish that would be appropriate uh, for us to, to, you know, use in, in teaching those lessons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Um, I think some of my earliest attempts to swim and do something meaningful underwater <laughs> in, in, in science in terms of sure. putting a, a deploying instruments or uh, deploying nets and gear or, or simply to try to observe behavior and get some quantitative measures. Uh, this is um, not simple to do. I, and I can share with you probably the, the first time scuba diving in, in the new river. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm, I had a tank full of air and, and it did last me no time at all <laughs> because I was so excited yeah, and right. I was breathing heavy and you're getting into, you know, water that's hard to maneuver in. And, you know, you just, you start breathing, uh, yeah. not, not the way you're taught to breathe in scuba <laughs> diving. Uh, but, you know, like you look at the gauge and, Hey, uh, we got to stop this right now. I, I have no air, uh, and so that that was really a, a unique experience. And all the experiences, seeing fish underwater. I mean, I had the opportunity to swim uh, with uh, whale sharks off the coast wow. of Mexico uh, and fascinating large animals, and uh, swim with um, uh, Atlantic stingrays and other things. So, I mean, the, the things that people are uh, doing today that involve fish beyond fishing. Uh, it's just it continued to intrigue me. So plenty of things on the list. Yeah. Okay. Um, you may have lived it, but what, what is your dream job or dream location? Yeah. Well, the dream, dream job is really retirement. And I think, okay. you know, if people all dream about retirement, um, I think if I was, uh, going to go anywhere that I haven't been, uh, in the future, it would probably be somewhere in the Pacific, West Pacific, the Coral Triangle, mm -hmm. you know, there's so such a diversity of coral reef fishes and none of which are familiar to me. So, I mean, it just would be no end of things mm -hmm. to do that would be uh, novel. Yeah. Okay. If money was not an issue, what is one project you would have, you would like to have worked on? Yes. Um, I think it, it's, we're ready to begin uh, a whole series of research on the ecology of fear uh, as applied to fish, and in particular, fish management practices. And so this has been untouched, you uh, mm -hmm. know, anywhere in the world. So this is a place where, where would I do it? Obviously, would have to collaborations at all the best aquariums around the world and try to replicate experiments and put them in, in the face of people so they could see what happens when you put predators with with fish and and, and there's an effect even if those predators don't eat the fish and and this is uh, unexplored uh, in 
aquatics. It's been explored with wolves and, and, and uh, their prey. And I, I think it may help explain what we often see. You know, people start complaining about muskie mm-hmm. stocked on top of bass and saying, oh, they're eating all the bass. Now, I don't think they're eating all the bass. All the quantitative tummy samples we've looked at suggest, no, they can't possibly eat all the bass. But what they can do is change the behavior mm-hmm. of the bass so that the, the catch rates go down. And if your catch rates go down, you're going to just assume right. musky ate, ate them all. Yeah. But, but I see, I've seen enough of these fleeting moments where, you know, a big predator swims into a pool and then all of a sudden all the prey are hiding, mm-hmm. not moving. And they're certainly not going to strike at, you know, some lure. Uh, and so this this is uh, a real practical application of that kind of science. Uh, it would really be fun to do. And okay. I can see doing it right in my backyard here. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Oh, great, great. This is um, uh, I can I can rely on a uh, three line from a poem from Mary Oliver that I, I use frequently to remind people of, about, you know, the importance of all these little things we're supposed to be paying attention of, to be self-aware. And, and it's a simple poem. The three lines are pay attention, be astonished and talk about it. You know, if we simply observe those three rules, you know, we'll, we'll never be bored and then we'll always, you know, be able to be engaged in, in our, uh, with our folks about what we just saw and how come it was, you know, astonishing. And mm-hmm. just kind of a different way to look at the world, just always be looking for what's going to astonish us. That's right. All right. Don, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work over your career. Congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. It, and if people want to find out more information or to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Uh, my email address is donald.orth at gmail.com. Uh, so I, I will respond to emails when I can get around to it. Okay. I'm not good with the phone, uh, so <laughs> don't call me. <laughs> okay. I don't have a phone. I don't have an office on campus, so don't go there looking for me either. All right. And I'll, I'll put your email down in the uh, the show description so people can find it there. Um, if yeah. they would like to get a hold of me, you can find us on social media at Fisheries Pod or old-fashioned email, feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I am Preston, and thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember to pay attention, be astonished, and talk about it.